we are in Hebrews 8 um, this morning, and we've already learned so much uh, in this study uh, in the book of Hebrews. If you've missed any of the, of the previous messages or if you are visiting with us today, we upload all of these messages. You can find the links on our website or on soundcloud.com. Uh, if you search for Anchor Joburg on SoundCloud, you will find us there. We have a playlist with all of the Hebrews messages, and uh, you'll be able to catch up and see where we're at. Last week, we had Pastor Mark Hodgetts here, and Pastor Mark weighed in on Hebrews 7, um, which essentially compares Jesus uh, to and his heavenly and eternal priesthood to, um, to Aaron and his earthly priesthood. So it spoke about Jesus being a, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as Pastor Mark said, um, in the order of Melchi uh, for short. And so you have Melchi, who the Bible says that we don't know his genealogy, he's eternal, we don't know where he comes from or where he goes to. He's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, and how he was a type or a foreshadowing, a clue of what God would say through Jesus and do through Jesus. Remember we said that in the beginning of Hebrews, that in the past there have been rumors and there have been messages and there have been signs and there have been clues, but Jesus then became the fullness of everything God has ever wanted to say to us as people and to us as a, a, you know, a broken humanity. Uh, he became the hope of God and the message of God greater than any message that's ever been shared. And so Melchizedek was just one of those clues that Jesus came to fulfill and this is different from the earthly priesthood. This is different from religion. This is different from just an earthly sacrifice, which is temporal or human. And ultimately, what it points to is the fact that Jesus still today, because he's our eternal high priest, are we still a part of eternity right now? I suppose we are, because we always will be. Eternity is eternity. And so right now, if it says that Jesus is our high priest forever, today is a part of forever, which means that today, Jesus is still in heaven, still at the right hand of God, and he is still your high priest. He is still the one that unites us with God, the one that connects us with God, the one that represents us before God. He is our advocate with the Father. He, he uh, is our justification. He is our, our righteousness, and the only righteousness and justification that we could ever have and, um, and so he is that eternal uh, high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to enter into the temple or into the tabernacle once a year, um, the, the most holy place, in order to make sacrifices for the people. Now, you might be visiting today and, um, and listening to all of this, or maybe you're not used to church and you're not kind of, you haven't been to church in a while, and if that's you this morning, then we want to tell you, number one, that you are welcome. But you might be sitting there saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, I might be in the wrong place. You know, I saw this church on Instagram, and I thought I was going to come and visit, and now all of a sudden they're talking about sacrifices and temples and high priests, and, and, uh, and I think I might be in the wrong building. I think I might have arrived at the wrong place. Um, and I totally get that. I totally get that. It's not lost on me how uh, oftentimes we have these concepts that come from the Old Testament and from another time in history that to us just seems very archaic, very irrelevant actually to our lives. Like when last did you high five a high priest? Like we don't even know what a high priest is supposed to look like. Um, never mind, you know, consider how this points to Jesus, right? So I want to make sure that, uh, you know, this is not being lost on you. I know that there are certain words um, that make people's minds shut off and go to sleep, right? And, and I'm aware of that because sometimes I say them and I actually watch people shut off and go to sleep while I'm preaching and I, I don't want that. So, so uh, one of the things, you know, it's basically like, um, like, like code that puts your brain into snooze mode. Um, it's like I, you say a certain word and, and people just sleep. For me, there's a couple of words like that 
And uh, to make the point, I'll, I'll mention a couple, you know, a few of them. Number one is accounting. You say accounting to me, my brain is already, I, I, I think I actually just fell asleep by about 10% just saying the word right there. I don't know if any of you are like me, but you say the word accounting, you say the word Formula One, right? Now, now I know that there are some of you that love it, but just to be honest with you this morning, I tried. I tried really hard. Um, but I grew up during the Schumacher age, which basically means you sat for five hours watching cars zoom around a track and then the red car wins. That happened every single Sunday. <laughs> and every single Sunday, I was like, okay, I'm trying to get into this, but um, for me, it makes my brain snooze. Um, how about the word bespoke? Just because everybody uses it. Bespoke is not bespoke anymore. Um, and uh, so, you know, switches my brain off. The Kardashians, it goes without saying. <laughs> The post office, if you ever have to go to the post office, uh, when people tell me, please hold, or when they tell me, uh, please uh, take a seat and fill out this form. All of those things make my brain switch off, and maybe they do for you as well. And, and I'm well aware that words like theology and high priest and temple and salvation or whatever it is, these words that we use might do the same for you. And that is why when I preach, the last thing that I want to do is sound clever. When I started preaching um, as a teenager, and the first time I remember I preached on a Friday night to a bunch of young people um, in, in quite a large church, but the entire time while I was preaching, I was actually just listening to myself and, listen, and evaluating how well I sounded while I was preaching. And then I wondered why it took me uh, months, possibly even years, to actually just connect with people. Because I wasn't preaching to them, I was just talking and making my sound, myself sound clever. If you are in love with your own uh, cleverness or people thinking that you're clever or people thinking, then you are actually going to disconnect from people. And that's not what preaching is supposed to. I'm not here to sound clever or to drop the big theological words. I can, and I've studied it, and, and I've, uh, you know, I've got degrees in it, and I've done Bible school um, on it, and uh, many different things that I could do, but I don't want to do any of those things because my purpose here this morning is not to sound clever. It's for you to understand and, and be able to, to uh, uh, absorb the message that God has, right? So this is not about us trying to throw our theological statements in order to sound as if we're very important and very clever. We want people to understand the word. We want them to understand the word. We want them to, to understand Jesus. And so I want to tell you that if you're not used to being around church and you think church is boring, I want to let you know that please don't blame Jesus for what is the preacher's fault, okay? So it's not Jesus that is boring, it's the preachers that are boring, right? It's not Jesus and the gospel that's boring, it, it is the, the theologians that are boring. And I say that I am one, right? I have a degree in that, so I am a theologian, and I'll tell you that they're boring. Um, and there is a place for academia, and we love it, and I've studied it, and I've done all my things, but, but here is the point, that Jesus is the most exciting, most awe-inspiring, um, you know, person that you will ever meet. And the message of the gospel will make you come alive like nothing else will. I, I struggle genuinely to trust people that, that have uh, a lot of theological thoughts, but very low amount of passion. I'm just going to tell you outright, if you're one of those people, I'm going to take a while to trust you. Because it should translate. The message, if it hits your heart, it should translate into something. Um, and God does something in your heart that looks like something, and so it's not boring, it's life-changing. Um, but Hebrews, and the fact of this, this book of Hebrews that we're looking at is that it is written to a community 
First of all, it's written within a context, and then it is written to a community within a specific Hebrew Middle Eastern context. And so the concepts of high priest and temple and sacrifice um, to them in that day were their bread and butter. So much of their lives uh, revolved around the temple and the sacrifices and, and, and the idea of the high priest and the day of atonement and the Passover and all these things, um, that they, these were basically buzzwords. In the time that this was written, these were buzzwords in the community to which this book was written. To us today, we're kind of removed from that time or removed from that culture, um, although we study it and we learn from it, we didn't grow up in it, and so I want to encourage you this morning to enter into that context a little bit, to open your, up your heart and your mind and to not switch your brain onto snooze or not allow your brain to go into snooze just because we're talking about the high priest or just because we're talking about the temple or the tabernacle or the sacrifices or the sacrificial lamb or whatever it might be, um, but to actually for a moment enter into that world enter into that context and understand what the scriptures were saying um, and, and, and what it says to us today. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. Allow me to give you some context this morning around the sacrifices, around the temple, around the high priest and how we arrived there. Um, and I'm going to start off with the fact that God created people with the purpose of relationship. Now, when I said I was going to give context, you didn't think I was going to go all the way back to creation, right? But um, I'm going to skip a lot, so don't worry. But, but the point is, um, that, that God created people because he had an intention, as he always does. He had a plan. He had a purpose. You're here this morning because God has that plan and purpose for your life, and that is for us to know him, for us to know who he is, to walk with him, to experience his love, and to respond in his love, which is basic, uh, to his love, which is basically what worship is, for us to honor him as God and as our creator, and for him to be our God and for us to be his people. There was a, a relationship with which God, uh, intention with which God created us, and, um, and God created us different from all of the rest of creation. All of the rest of creation that is living has got biological life, but doesn't necessarily have a spirit, doesn't have a spiritual being. And so even Adam was, was a person, was biologically alive as God formed him from the dust. But then it says that God breathed his ruach, his spirit into Adam's nostrils and Adam became a living Zoe kind, of, a God kind of alive. It's a spiritual life that was given to us as people, which is why we, above all other creation, uh, have the ability to know God. Why can we know God? Why can we walk with him? Why can we speak to him? Because you are a spirit. You are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. But your core is a spiritual being. And that spiritual being can hear and perceive spiritually. And therefore, even though we might not hear it with our physically, physical ears, we can hear the voice of God in our hearts. Why? Because deep calls out unto deep. God's spirit can speak to our spirit. And so we have this ability and that's how God created us. But God also created us to love him, and love can't be love if, there's, if, if we don't have choice. If somebody doesn't have the choice to love or not to love, then their love wouldn't be true. And so God also gave us choice. And in that garden with Adam and Eve, where God created them with all of that ability and all of that spiritual um, um, potential, um, they were deceived in the garden, and you probably know the story, but they sinned against God. 
They disobeyed God and they stepped out of line. They chose to exert their own will um, above what God's will was for man. And so this was rebellion and sin all of a sudden entered the world and entered the heart of mankind and, and as a result separated us from God because God is completely righteous and holy and true and we as, as people that had sinned, our sin then caused us to be separated from Him. In other words, the relationship broke down. And so there existed this separation between God and man. But the Bible says that God loved the world. He loved us even when we were sinners, even when we were rebels, even when we were running away from us. In spite of our rebellion and our sin and the hatred that we had in our hearts, God set into action a plan to redeem all of mankind. He set out a plan to buy us back, which is what the word redeem means, to free people from the sin that enslaved them. And so God uh, put this plan, he spoke about it right in the beginning, that, that, the, that the seed of the woman, capital S, would crush the head of Satan, and uh, spoke about Jesus and the Messiah, and that plan didn't just start immediately in terms of Jesus arriving, he didn't arrive the next day, there was a, a, a time period that God had to prepare people's hearts to receive their Savior, to be ready to, to welcome their Savior, and so God started by calling a man by the name of Abraham, and making a promise and a covenant with Abraham that God was going to redeem him and his descendants and bless them. That he was that through that lineage of Abraham, God was going to bring blessing back and his favor back. That Jesus said when he arrived, he was there to declare the, the year of God's favor. He came to bring God's favor back to people and to all of the descendants of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of faith. So it's not just the, uh, the, the book of Romans tells us it's not just the physical people that came through Abraham, um, not just the nation of Israel, but the people of faith. Because if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed, the book of Galatians tells us. And so, and so God made this promise. But the problem with sin, however, is that it's deceptive. And the person that it deceives the most is you. That's the problem. It's self-deceiving. We are such sinners that we lie to ourselves. You'd think that it would be a good idea for you, just for your future and, and, and everything that you want to do in life, to be honest with yourself, right? I mean, if I'm going to be honest with anybody, at least let it be me. But we're not, we don't even do that. We lie to ourselves about what's happening in our lives, about what's right, what's wrong, what God's calling is, about who we are. Um, and so people went through this thing where as more and more they were deceived and became deceived, they started calling what was, what was evil good, and things that were good they started calling evil. You probably see that um, in our world today even. Sinfulness leads people to do that. And the book of Romans chapter 1 tells us that because people rejected God over the knowledge of God in their minds, God gave them over to a debased or a warped way of thinking. They, if, you, you know, if you reject the, your creator and how we're all here, then we become more and more warped in terms of our thinking about what is, um, is true in this world and, and in this life. And the, the Greek says it's something like this. Because people rejected God in their minds, God gave them over to a rejected mind. That's what happened to humanity. Their minds became warped. But God was still determined not to give up on the people he created. And so there's a time where these descendants of Abraham enter into slavery in Egypt, and they cry out to God. All of a sudden, now that they're, in a, that they're being oppressed and that they, that they are finding life hard, they cry out to God, which isn't necessarily uh, you know, the best thing, that people only cry out to God whenever there is oppression or whenever they feel that. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing to cry out to God. 
if something makes you cry out to God, like Charles Spurgeon said that, uh, that I, will, I, I have learned to kiss the rock that, that uh, smashes me against, or to kiss the wave that smashes me against the rock of Christ. And, um, and so that's what happened to Israel. They're in slavery. They're crying out to God. And so God sends a man by the name of Moses. And he calls Moses, and he tells him of his plan that he has a desire to deliver people from Egypt. And this, again, was one of those clues. This was one of those, those signs. It was one of those, those illustrations where God is saying, people are in slavery to sin, and my desire is to deliver them from slavery. That's what the story of uh, the Exodus and people coming out of Egypt, the people of God coming out of Egypt is all about. We're coming out of our slavery to sin. And so Mo Moses, he goes, and you know the story, he marches the people of Israel uh, uh, out of Egypt, and immediately, because people were delivered from their slavery, but not from the slavery of sin in their hearts, they begin to worship idols. They've literally just walked through an ocean or a sea that split itself and walked through on dry land, and then were led by a pillar of cloud uh, in the day and a pillar of fire by night. They literally stood and camped at Mount Sinai, which had thunder and lightning and, and, and this incredible display of power as God met Moses on that mountain. And in the shadow of that mountain, the sin in their heart was so strong that they begin to create idols at that point. And, um, and that is really what we're like as people. There is sin in our hearts that, that drives us away from God all of the time, and we're constantly wanting to, to make our own idols and, and, and worship anything but God, look to other saviors. And so that's what they did. And so God, therefore, in order for people to know what his righteousness was and what it looked like to be righteous, he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses um, the Mosaic laws in total. It, includes, it included ceremonial laws and, and ritual laws and all kinds of other laws. But in total, there were 613 laws. And uh, they're also uh, summarized very well by the Ten Commandments, which was part of those, those laws. But he gives the people of Israel the laws for them to live by, known as the Mosaic laws. And then God makes a covenant with them based on that law. So the first covenant that God then makes with the people of Israel after they've come out of Egypt is a covenant based on the law, a Mosaic covenant. And, and I'm going to show you how all of this matters. I'm just giving you this background and this context because otherwise what I say might just be lost on you. Um, and so the covenant essentially says this. And you can read it in the book of Exodus. These are God's holy requirements. If you can do them, you'll be blessed. If you can do them, you will have life. If you can do them, you will have everything that, that, that God wants for your life. But if you cannot, then you'll be cursed. And if you cannot do them, you'll also die because it means you would have fallen short of God's righteous standard and therefore cannot be reunited with him. And so he puts forward the, um, the law and he says, here is the law. The problem, however, and it's still the problem today, is that the law actually strengthens sin within us. Paul puts it this way, it stirs up rebellion within us. I don't know if you've ever had this, but if you, you might never have a thought to do something until somebody tells you, you mustn't do it, right? I drive to school every morning, I take three little boys to school every morning, and when they're sitting in the back of their car, whatever I tell them they must not do is the exact thing that they then at that point want to do, right? Like if I told you right now, you are not allowed, before God, you are not allowed to look at um, the base bin below the speaker on my left. Don't look at it. 
you had, you had no desire before. You, none of you were like, man, I just have to look at that thing. But now you do, because I told you you couldn't. And that's because the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. We are sinners. We want to do what we're not supposed to do. And so God knew this, actually, when he gave us the law. And so he wanted to reveal to us that we could not fix ourselves or make ourselves right with God through our own actions. That's what he wanted people to know. Because you wouldn't think that you need a Savior and you wouldn't accept a Savior if you didn't know that you needed a Savior, right? That's why some people still don't accept Jesus. They think they're fine on their own. It's only when we get honest or when you actually try very hard to be good that you realize that you're not and that you do need a Savior. So this is why God gave the law um, to show us that we can only become righteous with, with uh, that we cannot become righteous without grace or forgiveness or a Savior. And so God gave the people of Israel the law in order to reveal their sin and make them aware of their need for a savior. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin and rebellion is judgment and separation from God eternally, and so there must be a payment for sin. So here's the fact. How many of us have, can, can honestly say that we haven't done anything wrong in our entire lives? Like, we've never been dishonest, we've never lied, we've never, you know, um, had, we've never been dishonest, we've never been greedy, we've never been selfish. There's not a single person in this building, including myself, who could put up our hands, right? And so, knowing that, and knowing that if God had to judge us according to the law, the Bible says in the book of James, if you break one law, then you've broken them all. Then you're guilty of all of them. You've got to pay for all of them. So if we're going to be judged and live according to the law, then you must keep the entire law perfectly, or otherwise you're guilty of breaking them all. And so if we are going to be made righteous through the law, then we are saying that it is up to us in order to, to do that. And God wanted us to know that if you do that, then you cannot escape judgment. You're accepting that you will pay for your own sins in eternity. But God wanted to, to deliver us from that. And so he starts to send more clues, more types, more, more um, um, illustrations to show that he will send a savior that we cannot save ourselves. If you weren't sure, here's the law, see if you can do it, you see you can't, now I will send a savior. Do you understand how that works? This is what God was doing, and, and so he reiterates this. For example, when they were in Egypt, the final plague was the plague of death, and God's desire is to deliver us from judgment and death eternally, and from separation. And so what he tells the people of Israel to do is to take a lamb, but to make sure that it is spotless, that it is a spotless lamb, and then to slaughter that lamb, and to take the blood and to wipe it on the doorposts of their houses, and then the angel of death would pass over them. And this was a picture of Jesus. This was done, and this is known as the Passover, because in that time, the angel of death passed over. They didn't, death didn't come to the people of Israel because this, the blood of the lamb was on the entrance of their homes. And this is a picture of what Jesus would do as he next weekend 2,000 and something years ago, rode into Israel, and then the blood of the lamb was spilt on the cross so that death would pass over us. That's why Easter in the Hebrew context is Passover. Next weekend is Passover, and we celebrate the Passover on that weekend. We call it Easter, um, but, it, but it's the same thing. It is Passover, and, and so the spotless lamb of, in Egypt that caused the angel of death to pass over was another just type of what Jesus would do. And there was another one which brings us to Hebrews 8, which is the priesthood, especially the high priest. 
Because God instructed Moses when he was on that mountain and God gave Moses the laws, he also instructed him to build a tabernacle in the wilderness and later a temple in Jerusalem. And what the scriptures tell us here in Hebrews 8 8, is that that tabernacle was a representation of what it looks like in heaven. It was an a heavenly, it was, a, it was an illustration of a heavenly type, something that exists in heaven today, the throne room of God, the inner sanctuary, the most holy place where God sits. The, the, the earthly tabernacle was a representation of that. And so the most holy place within that tabernacle was the place where God's presence resided. It was his throne. There was the ark of the covenant inside there, the mercy seat with the cherubim angels on top of the ark of the covenant. And, and, they, and you know, that is where, um, and there's so much that I can go into that just points to these heavenly realities and what Jesus would do. But to save time this morning, that was the place of God's presence. Now remember, at this time, Jesus hasn't come, he hasn't died, and so people are still separated from, because of their sin from God. But he has a plan. He has a plan for people. And so um, because they were sinners, people couldn't, you couldn't just waltz in. Like we've got access to the throne room of God today because of what Jesus has done. But back then you couldn't waltz into there. You'd die. You'd physically die as a sinner just walking into the presence of God. And people were separated from God. So here's the type. Here's the picture. Here's the illustration. God appoints a high priest starting with Aaron and then running through uh, his descendants in the, in the tribe of Levi And a high priest then, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, must go after a ritual washing and cleansing and everything before the Lord on behalf of the people. And there he must offer a sacrifice to God, pouring the blood onto the mercy seat, and in that way, um, atone for the people's sins. But this was just a copy. It was just a shadow. It was just a picture of what Jesus was due. And so the blood of the, the goats and the lambs and everything that they slaughtered could never wipe away our sins. It could never cleanse us of unrighteousness. Are you still with me this morning? Because I am basically, I've just basically given you half the Old Testament in like 10 minutes, all right? So a little bit more info this morning, but I hope it gives you the context that Jesus is the high priest that these other high, earthly high priests came to represent. In fact, they said that when the lamb was slaughtered, there was a practice by where the owner of the lamb would put his hand on, on the lamb itself while after it had been slaughtered and as it was dying for people to recognize that this lamb is dying for their sins, that this lamb and this property was an extension of themselves. And why is that necessary? So graphic, so hectic, because... The wages of sin is death. And if you don't know that and feel it, then you've been deceived by sin. We must understand that there is judgment for our sins outside of Jesus, but God wanted to save us from that judgment. So he made people very aware of their sins through this practice. But the problem is that the blood of lambs and goats could never remove our sins. And even the high priest himself could only appear before God once a year. And even then, he would have to start by making sacrifices for himself because he was just a human being. And even he, even as the high priest, was imperfect. So with effect, what the Old Testament shows us is that the law and religion and sacrifices could never make us right with God. 
They could never wipe away our sins. They could never remove God's judgment from our lives. But they pointed to something else. They weren't the, it wasn't the salvation. It was the pointing to the salvation. And the salvation is in what? That God made a promise. God made a promise, and then he confirmed it with an oath that he would save his people from their sins, that he would be merciful, that he would find a way to justify us without us having to be judged for our own sins. And so what he does is he sends his own son as the sacrifice. That's why when Jesus arrived, you had John the Baptist who walked out and he began, he began to preach by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Here comes the Lamb of God. Not an earthly sacrifice, not an earthly lamb, not, not, not some uh, um, uh, fault uh, uh, or, or imperfect sacrifice, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His own high priest without sin, not in some earthly order like Aaron, but an eternal, sinless, perfect high priest who can offer sacrifice for us once for all. Once for all. This is what it says. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but Hebrews 10 verse 11 uh, says this. It says, and every, high, and, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The earthly sacrifices can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering, by one offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time. Listen to that. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So yes, God is in a process with your life where he is sanctifying you and making you more like Jesus, but your position before God is that you are perfect. That's your position. Your experience daily is that you're being changed. In other words, if I can put it this way, God is busy turning you into what you already are. Your earthly experience to be what your heavenly reality already reflects. But before God, you are perfect in Christ because of what he did. And so Jesus, therefore, became our high priest, the one who went into the presence of God and made the sacrifice, except this time it was an eternal and perfect sacrifice. That stands forever. Not because he was born into the earthly order of Levi, but because God had made a promise to save his people that through his son, who completed the work on the cross and now sits in the presence of God, he would forever be our justification, the declaration of our deliverance from sin and our guarantee of sonship and a relationship with God. You have a guarantee in heaven. Your relationship with God is guaranteed because it's not based on your own sacrifices. It's based on the high priest, the sacrifice of God. So here in Hebrews 8, how was that for context? You feel like you have some context now? <laughs> if you missed any of that, you can just listen to the recording and pause it and go slowly. Some mornings I just have to do that. But Hebrews 8 verse 1 says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Some translation says the main point is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, one who is seated with God in heaven. That's the kind of high priest we have, not an earthly high priest. This is not, I'm not a priest. I mean, I, you could call me that if you wanted to, but I'm not, I'm not the high priest. I'm not some, I can't connect you to God. I'm not a mediator. There is no more mediators. If any pastor or priest or earthly person or earthly program or religion or anything wants to tell you that they're gonna connect you to God, you turn around and walk away. Because I'm not here to connect you to God. I can't do that. I'm not a mediator. 
I'm just here to tell you about the mediator. And that mediator is Jesus. And he came and he died for you. That's the kind of high priest that you have. Not an earthly one, but one that sits in heaven with God at the throne of, of the majesty in heaven. A minister, Jesus ministers in the holy places, in the true tent. There's the tabernacle, which was the copy, but the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Hebrews 8, 6 says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. He is, he's actually ministering. He has a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, the old covenant, the covenant of the law. Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, there's now a new covenant, not the old covenant, which was established on better promises. So Jesus came, not so that we could just have another form of the old covenant established on the old promises and, and the exodus of, and uh, you know, I said before you life and death, therefore choose life. I wish I could. Honestly, I wish I could just choose life in every single circumstance, but I know myself, and if you know yourself, you'll know that oftentimes you don't choose life. So we needed a better covenant than that. We needed something to save us from that and something to give us a better covenant based on better promises. I don't know if anybody has ever made a promise to you, but it had conditions attached, or you only found out the fine print later on. I know that every time I open up my, uh, my banking app or I go onto my banking website, I get the promise of free cash in my, uh, in my account within 24 hours if I'll just sign up for this cash loan. And so, you know, up to 100,000 rand instantly in your account. And I'm like, such a friendly bank, you know? <laughs> These guys are just offering me money. It's so amazing. And how did this bank know that I needed 100,000 rand? I mean, that's what you normally think to yourself. Right now, it's like amazing, this friendly bank. But what the friendly bank doesn't tell you is that you have to pay them that money back and that you'll pay it back with thousands of rands of interest. There's fine print to the promise. And, uh, and, and if you fail to return that money, I remember driving once past a house and, and seeing a house that, and, and, and goods that were being repossessed. That's not fun. I felt for those people driving past there because I saw all their personal belongings just laid out on the lawn in front of the house. And, and the bank said, well, you, you took the 100,000 or whatever it was, but you didn't pay us back, so we're gonna come fetch some of your stuff. That's the fine print. There's a promise, but the promise isn't free. The promise has conditions. The problem with a cash loan, as with the law, is that it, it might feel like it helps you out in a tight spot, but it doesn't actually liberate you from your poverty. That the loan doesn't help you out of your poverty. It doesn't take you out of the, It doesn't make you rich at the end of the day. It just makes you in debt. And the Lord did the same. It told us what was right, but it didn't help us out of our debt. In fact, it increased our debt. Because now we knew what was wrong, and yet we still did it. Which means we were guilty. So the first covenant was based on the law. The, the, and, and the law has fine print. It has promise of life. But the fine print is, if you can't obey it, then it, there's death, <laughs> which is kind of like a big deal. You, you know, they should put that in bolder letters. It promises blessings for obedience, which is great if you have the ability to obey, but if you don't, it results in judgment, which essentially turns us into rebels. It turns us into rebels, knowing this. Imagine if I called, I've got three boys, imagine if I called Eli closer to me, my oldest boy, and I said to him, hey boy, dad loves you so much. If you do everything that you're supposed to do and you don't do anything wrong, I promise I will never leave you. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, which with my boys is all of the time, 
and you disobey me, then daddy will be forced to pack his bags and to leave and you'll never see me again. Does that sound like it's going to lead to a good childhood? Does that sound like it's going to lead to joy in, in a relationship with my father? No, when the promise is perfect obedience will lead to a relationship, but disobedience will lead to condemnation and separation, it makes us go, you know what? You know what? It's too much pressure. I actually cannot do this. Dad, pack your bags right now and go. I'll live without you because I, I know I'm going to mess it up, right? The law turns you into a rebel. That's why the next verse says in Hebrews 8, 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, the, the covenant of the law had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the covenant of the law was without fault and perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus to, to come and do anything else. We wouldn't have needed a second covenant. So what it tells us is that the first covenant, the law, wasn't faultless. There was a fault with it. And what was that fault? The next few verses goes on to tell us, and I'm going to read you this from Hebrews 8 verse 8. It says, for finding fault with it, God says to them, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers one day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. There it is. You don't do what you're supposed to do. The law requires that God steps out. There's separation. Not like that, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be, here's the point, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Under the law, your disobedience results in separation. Under grace, God forgives our disobedience and there's unity with God. There's reconciliation with God. That's why this second covenant is a better covenant based on better promises. In the covenant of the law, we are told what we must do. But the law does not at the same time give us the power to do it. That's the most, that's just basically dishing out condemnation. If I, for example, told a paralyzed man that he can be saved and go to heaven as long as he can jump up and run around, then he'll be fine. But I've condemned him because that's not something he can do. And that's what the law was. It was condemnation. It was the ministry, it says in 2 Corinthians, of condemnation, of death, to show us the death that existed within us. So the law tells us how to live, but doesn't give us the power to do it. It diagnoses the disease, but doesn't give us the medicine to heal. This is why in the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a man that's beaten up, and he's lying half dead by the side of the road, and it says that a priest came along and passed by on the other side of the road. And a Levite came along and looked at him, but passed by on the other side. Why? Because the law can look upon your brokenness and your sinfulness and your guilt, but it cannot rescue you from it. It cannot help you from your guilt and your brokenness. But now God says that the promise of the new covenant is better. This new covenant that we have is better. No longer an external set of rules or religion, but a relationship with a living God. We, we no longer serve God according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of God. Because we are completely forgiven in Christ, completely forgiven and redeemed, Therefore, we no longer serve God externally like he's over there and we're over here and we're just trying our best to reconnect with him. But he forgives us and then takes up residence in our hearts. 
converts, we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. And we serve God from this living relationship, this living walk. No more condemnation, as it says in Romans 8.1. We heal from our brokenness. I'll put my laws in your mind. I'll write them in your hearts. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I won't remember your sins anymore. This is the new covenant, a better covenant based on better promises. Watchman Nee says, the law makes demands and leaves us helpless to fulfill them. Christ makes demands, but he fulfills in us the very demands he makes. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. He fulfills in us the very demands that he makes. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you say that you're going to follow the law, okay, you've got to do them all. You didn't do one of them. You've brought a curse upon yourself, the curse of judgment and condemnation. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous live by faith, and law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So it's not through faith. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He came and fulfilled the law on our behalf and redeemed us from that. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that we commemorate the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, bringing about a new covenant to save his people from the debt that they owed to the law. And so because we've been freed from the law, it means that we've also been freed from sin. It means we can say no to sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the power of sin is the law. If you want to be a very powerful sinner, live according to the law. You'll be great at it. And that's the fault. That's what was wrong. That's what was broken. We're sinners, and the law therefore stirs up rebellion in us. It is good, but we are bad. The covenant of grace, however, is this knowledge that God accepts us because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. So we're accepted, we're loved, we're, we're, we're welcomed, and it makes us grateful. It delivers us from the power of sin and gives us the freedom to choose obedience. St. Augustine said, the law was given that we might seek grace. Grace was given that we might fulfill the law. But now you fulfill the law without looking at the law, simply by looking at Jesus. The law is fulfilled within you, and you can live a different kind of life. And people often say, no, 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 you mustn't preach grace because if you don't at least tell people about the law, then they're just going to go out and sin. So let me ask you this. Which one of these would turn my son, I mentioned Eli earlier, which one of these would turn my son into a rebel? Which one of these would turn you into a rebel? If I called Eli and I said, hey, Eli, daddy doesn't want you to do anything wrong. If you do, I will leave you and never come back and I will no longer be your daddy. Or, hey, Eli, no matter what you do, I will love you and I won't ever leave you. You are my boy and I have great things in store for you. That's why dad doesn't want you to do things that are wrong. Which one leads to rebellion? Which one makes people sin? Is it the grace or is it the law? Hebrews 8 says, the fault is with the first one. The second one is perfect. The second one is perfect. Hebrews 8.13 therefore says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The covenant of the law, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's not, this is what God does. So I want to finish off this morning. And what I love about scripture is that when it speaks a biblical truth, it doesn't just speak it once. 
I encourage people never to take one verse and to build a doctrine on it. But the scriptures even say, let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And what I love is, is that this truth is something that is repeated again and again throughout scripture. And I want to just show you, and I'm going to read through it quickly this morning, but I want to show you how this is in 2 Corinthians reflected the exact same thing. It says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4, just stick with me, we're almost done this morning. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. This is how we have confidence through Christ to God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7 says, now if the ministry of death, this is talking about the, the, the covenant of the Lord, was the ministry of death. It revealed our death. Carved in letters of stone, which is how Moses got the law, came with us, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. One of the reasons why Moses covered his face isn't just because his face was shining so bright, but because the glory was fading. If you're going to serve God in your own life and you're going to do it according to the law, let me tell you, the glory will fade. The novelty will wear off. Your strength will wane. And you will find yourself disappointed at the fact that you weren't able to hold to your own commitment. The glory fades. Will not the ministry, therefore, of the Spirit have even more glory? For if it were glory in the ministry of condemnation, the Mosaic law, the covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if it were, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The, the law was just a clue. It was just, in Galatians it says, a tutor, a teacher, leading us to faith in Christ. But now that we are in Christ, we are no longer under that law. We no longer serve God under a, a mixture of the old covenant and the new covenant. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. This is a new day, a new covenant that we have with God. The glory, there was glory in the law. It revealed God's righteousness, but it was completely outshone by the glory of the new covenant. It's like holding a candle in a dark room and going, wow, this is amazing. Look at how much light it produces. And then the sun comes up and this candle means nothing. That's essentially what it's saying here. And this is what it says then, going on from there. It says, since we have such a hope, because we're not under the law, we're under this new covenant, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Yes, to this day, yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, the veil of the law. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and the Lord, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What is this hope that we have? We don't have a fading glory. We don't have a fading glory. We're not right with God one moment, and then when we sin, not right with Him anymore. And then we're right with Him, and then we're not right with Him. But we have freedom in God. He is our eternal high priest, producing something in our lives. This is what it produces. Remember, it says that the promise, what is, what is the better promise? A better covenant on the better promise. What is the better promise? The better promise is, is that God is now in your heart. He has written his law on your mind, in your heart, that he has forgiven your sins and that you can know him and walk with him. And what does that produce? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, it says, and we all, with unveiled face, the law was the veil, it's taken away in Christ. With unveiled face, we all, beholding, the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Not letter, spirit. As we behold Jesus, we are transformed. That's the better promise. In other words, the, the, under the old covenant, you had to work really hard to try and be obedient and to fix yourself and to make yourself better. But under the new covenant, we rest in Jesus and we allow him to transform us. What is our job? Beholding. To behold is what this entire series is about. Consider Jesus. Pastor Mark spoke last week and he said that word consider in the Greek means to gaze intently, to, to not be distracted, to not look to the left or to, or to the right, but to fix your gaze on Jesus and Jesus alone. It is an expression of faith. And so when we put our faith in Jesus and what he has done for us through this new covenant, we are changed fundamentally from the inside out. Not externally like the law would attempt to do from the outside in. And that is what God does in our hearts. So we can wave goodbye to the old covenant. It's made obsolete, it's faded away, and we've been delivered from it. And we are encouraged not to turn our faith today back into the Old Testament, back into the old covenant. Martin Luther said, those who interpret gospel to anything other than good news have turned that very thing into law rather than grace and have made for us a Moses out of Christ. Can we not make a Moses out of Christ? Can we not turn Jesus and his grace back into the law? But can we fix our eyes on Jesus and be transformed from the inside out? That is how the blessing of Abraham comes to our lives. Galatians 3.14 says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God made a promise to Abraham, said, your descendants will belong to me. They'll know me, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. And because the law revealed our sin, but was put away so that we can accept the grace of God that came through Jesus, we are now in a covenant with God that is eternal. He is our high priest, he sits in the most holy place, and we are united with God forever, and we'll be with him the moment we leave this earth. So I wanna tell you this morning, when you feel that you cannot be who God wants you to be, or you feel unworthy of his love, or you feel unworthy of his blessing, or you feel disappointed with how many times you've messed up, remember that you are under the new covenant. Remember that God made a promise with you that wasn't based on your performance, but that was based on the performance of Jesus on the cross. And remember that God's spirit lives in you by his grace and is changing you from the inside out every day you are becoming more like Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. And that is why I want you to consider Jesus a better promise, a better promise. Amen? That was a lot. Okay, I get that. That was a lot. But hopefully you got something this morning. Some days I come in light. Sometimes I come in heavy. Today I came in extra heavy. Um, but I hope that you were able to get something out of that and that you are encouraged to look to Jesus as the author and the finisher of your faith. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray together this morning.